Warning. Strong language alert. Welcome to Behind the Belt, a show about professional wrestling. Love wrestling? Hate wrestling? Know nothing about wrestling? We're going to be taking a deep dive into all aspects of professional wrestling. In the ring, outside the ring, and well, you might even say behind it. Hey everyone, this is Clem. Welcome to Behind the Belt. I'm here with Atticus and Crackerjack, and today we're talking about storytelling and wrestling. So when people talk about wrestling being fake, uh, firstly, go fuck yourself. And uh, secondly, <laughs> I think the, the element where that does kind of apply is in the fiction. Because if the, the physicality is legit and it does genuinely hurt, the one element we can say that is contrived is the motivations, the storyline, the, the, we call them angles. Well, that's kind of what kept me interested when I was watching, you know, as a kid. I have a taste for finer detail of the wrestling nowadays. But, you know, when I was 13 and 14, like I kind of, I, I sort of cared a lot about the, you know, the stories and the matches were cool, but, you know. Yeah, I, and that's that's one of the cool things about wrestling. And it was one of the first things I noticed when I started watching HBO's Oz. I'm like, it's the same thing as wrestling in that there's multiple protagonists and some are in the background and some are in the foreground and they all have different motivations and goals and sometimes they're the most important story of that week and other times they're they're relegated to the background and it's exactly the same with wrestling you've got all these different protagonists with their own agendas and their own dreams and hopes and stuff and the stories that are born out of that makes you give a shit about what happens to these people and the extension of that is it makes you care whether they win or lose did they ever have a wrestling episode in oz uh well i mean there was there was i guess you could call it grappling <laughs> there were some tight rear waist locks. Well, another similarity is, you know, sometimes you're lucky to see a bare rear end. It might be Christopher Maloney's or it could be somebody else's. Oh, if you're so lucky. <laughs> well, I think that was the thing I didn't realise because the first live wrestling show I went to, well, with Atticus, it was an end-of-year show and I kind of thought it was just self-contained. I didn't realise the extent to which it was wrapping up you know, some rivalries and ongoing simmering resentments that had carried on throughout potentially the whole year. And it wasn't until we started going more regularly that I realised these were ongoing storylines. And I think a good show will have a combination of stories that link it to other shows before and after this event, but also I think any show should be self-contained narratively. And that's something that came out of Raw about five years into there. They, they got a new producer, I can't remember her name, I'm sorry, but she was the first one to introduce the idea of self-contained arcs within each episode of Raw. And that's and you could see it immediately, and it's probably really strong to see coming in during the Attitude Era, where we kick off with a thing and this is going to set up the events later, and then that particular event will still close satisfactorily but give you hooks for future episodes. Local shows often get this wrong. You turn up for the first time you've been to a local show and suddenly they're giving you all this exposition and last show at the thing and now this me and you don't give a shit about any of that. It's got to make sense to you even if you just walked in the door. There used to be a, a real emphasis on using the first half of the show to sell the second half, mm. for example. So they, they'd set the wheels in motion. Austin's here tonight. He's looking for McMahon. What's going to happen when he finds McMahon? McMahon's ducking him, ducking him, and obviously they have some sort of quasi-closure at the end, but again, leave it open to bring you back to next week. And it's just good soap. I was watching um, Bold and the Beautiful <laughs> a couple of days ago. Um, I, it's, it's just like wrestling, but trapped in treacle, where they drag those same moments out over an entire episode. There's a really nice moment in Glow, the Netflix series about the gorgeous ladies of wrestling that speaks to this. Former TV actress Debbie is struggling with the notion of what professional wrestling is. She seems to think it's just a bunch of women hitting each other in the ring. She doesn't get it. 
And so a couple of her fellow gorgeous ladies take her along to a local indie promotion where she has a ringside epiphany. Oh, my God. Some of the many ways in which pro wrestling has been described include soap opera, telenovela, contemporary theatre in the round. Indeed, along with The Simpsons and Gunsmoke and Lassie, I don't think it's a coincidence that WWE's Monday Night Raw is one of the longest running episodic TV series in history. So where did it all begin? There are different types of storytelling within wrestling. Say if the good guy hurts his leg early on in the match and the bad guy keeps targeting it and then ultimately the good guy loses because he can't overcome this issue with his leg. That's the sort of self-contained story you'd get within a match and it really falls more under the umbrella of wrestling psychology, which broadly refers to stuff you do in matches to maintain the rules of reality that would normally govern a legitimate physical competition. The storytelling we're discussing today refers to the broader narrative arcs that cause wrestlers to fight each other in the first place, also known as angles. A storyline gives purpose to the protagonists with an aim to making the viewer invested in these characters, caring about who wins or loses and what happens next. Pro wrestling was originally born out of legitimately competitive wrestling once promoters realised that they could make more money if they fixed the fights to create stars and anticipated matchups. At some point after that, these same promoters realised that fabricated personal conflicts could add even more interest to the very first and core fiction that should apply to every match wrestlers wrestling each other because it's their job to wrestle each other and you get paid more if you win. Like tennis. I also work as a screenwriter and one of the first things that you do when coming up with a story is working out your characters. It's really hard to have a story without characters. I'm yet to see a compelling story which only features a landscape. What about Werner Herzog? (laughs) (laughs) Fuck! (laughs) (laughs) The landscape is a character. (laughs) No, but I know what you mean. I mean, it's the characters ultimately are what drive the story. Right, and in wrestling you've got to have at least two characters. And so surely the foundation for wrestling storylines is the characters. Engaging personalities give you something to hook onto. I mean, the events can resonate with you and the stakes can seem familiar, but ultimately it's the people involved in these situations that you're going to either identify with or hold in contempt or whatever your emotional reaction is to them. Well, I think the the best example is you ask anyone who may not have a kind of long-running affiliation with wrestling, the things they might recall are people like a Hulk Hogan or a Rock or Mm. a Steve Austin. And each of these people independently may have done similar matches or been in similar circumstances physically or in moves or events, like you say, but ultimately it's their characters and their personas that have prevailed as the thing that's really got them over and has brought them popularity. Yeah, no casual fan goes, oh, I remember the Ultimate Warrior. He used to do a lot of forearm strikes and atomic drops. They go, oh, Ultimate Warrior, he'd shake the ropes, and he was all, wah, Hogan. Like, they remember the the personality stuff. You know, people, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I mean, they remember the stunner, but beyond that, no one really remembers his work. They remember he drank beer and he swore and he was all, get fucked, boss, and stuff like that. And that's what people hook onto, the, the personalities. Well, it's interesting too. Obviously, you had some great matches, but I think what is really kind of a perennial thing from the Stone Cold era are those storylines, is Stone Cold versus 
versus is it Mr. McMahon? I always forget when he became Mr. or when Which he was Which one Vince. is it? Is it Vince or Mr. McMahon? Yeah. <laughs> it's Mr. McMahon on the network. Uh, but those little storylines, those little self-contained, they are almost like soap opera episodes because they're not really wrestling matches. You know, there's often some wrestling that occurs between the two of them. But, you know, when McMahon's in hospital and the surgeon turns out to be stone cold, that's just <laughs> art. I often explain wrestling to people in that it's effectively a soap opera where you think of your favourite soap, but then the climaxes would be that they fight each other yeah. rather than, let's say, they have an emotional argument with some very saccharine music in the background. They resolve their differences. their differences through conflict. Well, that's because the stories are meant to sell the match, and I think that's what gets ass backwards a lot of time in wrestling now and that all this stage or screen time goes into telling the story and all this energy goes into getting the story across whereas really the story is meant to be the easy bit that hooks you to oh wow this is a a fiery conflict between these two individuals i will lay down my money to watch and you know it obviously works in boxing as we've seen lately but uh, within wrestling, especially at an independent level, people think we need stories and it just turns into these big chore-like slabs of exposition it shows, whereas the story should be as brief as possible. You just need just enough to give meaning to the match so the match is more exciting than it would be if it was just a sporting competition. Well, the, the, the boxing allegory is a good one because if it were just about the match, then they wouldn't have promotional events where they shit-talk each other or whatever. You know, Obviously, that's a big part of them selling the story between the people, like you said. From a screenwriting perspective, you know, what you need in a scene is conflict. You need to have two people, the power has to change hands. You don't need reams of backstory. You don't need loads of exposition being delivered by both characters saying, as you know, we last fought at this time. You know, you just need to have a believable sense of conflict and that ups the stakes. Then you're excited. But I guess the question I have about character development is how much does your body dictate the kind of character that you can play? So what we've done is we've got two wrestlers Two of the best in the country, but also two guys who are very different physically. We've got the statuesque, muscular Elliot Sexton and the forever bulking Mr. Juicy. We were hoping to get these two guys in the studio at the same time, but unfortunately, as is the way in wrestling, best friends have become bitter enemies, so we had to interview them separately. Hi, I'm Mr. Juicy. I've been wrestling for 12 years now, and I'm very overweight. (laughs) Does that that count? I really am. I'm so fat. Doesn't matter. So I'm just under six foot, but I tell everyone I'm six foot because it's much nicer, and 141 kilos at the moment, so pretty heavy. I should be 90 kilos by the old BMI scale. So, yeah, I mean, look, I bench press 200 kilos, so that's that's my excuse. That's not and I've bad. got videos if no one believes me. It's kind of gone up and down. So I, I came in as a jolly fat guy. I was, I was in a really bad relationship outside of wrestling, uh, and food was the comfort. And then I discovered that not eating means you can lose weight, which was awesome. So I got down to about 98 kilos, uh, which was good for my height. So I was quite lean at one stage. And then I went, ah, this is boring because no one thinks I'm funny anymore. And no one thinks I can beat anyone up because I just look like a regular guy. So I'm just like, I'm just going to get real big, which is awesome because you just eat whatever the fuck you want. Like last night for dinner, I had 50 nuggets. It was so good. <laughs> I was just dipping. I was like, this is great. I think I'm naturally a lazy person. So why wouldn't I want to do less and get more impact out of it? Like I'd rather do a bunch of shoulder tackles and people go, holy shit, these guys are hitting each other. You know, so I thought, okay, I'll just be fat and jacked and it'll be awesome. My shoulders can be bigger than anyone else's and it'll be great. So that's kind of where it came from. Kind of, I think out of necessity, because I was never going to be the leanest guy. If you look at other guys in this country, like Damien Slater, the guy looks like a Greek god. Like I can't compete with that. 
I can diet and exercise my whole life. I'll never look like that. So why not be bigger than him? So when I do wrestle and people go, shit, Juicy's going to fucking hit him. And it's going to hurt. How you look is obviously going to dictate the type of wrestler you can be. But in talking to Juicy and Sexton, they both say that there's almost a kind of responsibility that comes with the body you bring to the table and how you use that on a show. If someone's watching me in the ring, they see a big guy. So if that's what they see, that's what I need to play. Because otherwise, it doesn't make sense to them. The whole thing is, you know, hitting that floor from a move and people go, fuck, that, that would have hurt. But the thing is now, even heavyweights, if you guys watch PWG, which I don't know, it's not my style, but you've got uh, guys who are 150 kilos doing, you know, shooting star presses. But why would you? I know you can, but what you're, you're taking away from me what a heavyweight is. If you do it once, like when Lesnar did it once, even though he fucking nearly died, but when he did it once, <laughs> we're all like, holy shit. But if he did that every show, and then I have to watch, you know, uh, for example, Paul London do it, why, why do I care? Why do I care Paul London's doing it? He looks like, you know, like a regular bloke. Like, I want to be shocked by the cruiserweights and even more surprised by the heavyweights. It has its place. Like, there are going to be people on both sides of the fence. Some people think that the big guy should stick to what the big guy should do, like a Vader, you know what I mean? Uh, but then there are, there are big guys that can, they can go. Like, they can go just as well as anyone else. Sexton started his training in Australia, but he credits the real leap in his development to the time he spent training under Booker T. And if you don't know who Booker T is, he is a six-time former world heavyweight champion. And in 2013, he was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. Booker T would go, all right, step in the ring with uh, Joe Blow and then give me the first three minutes of the match. And then you would have all of us going, uh, okay. And, you know, we lock up, we headlock, we go off the ropes, we do this and that. And we're running, and we're jumping up and down and we're arm drags and hip tosses. We're getting like halfway through the match in the first three minutes. So then Booker T, you know, does the slow stand up and take off his jacket and get in the ring with someone and goes, all right, this is how you do it. And he gives us three minutes of like one bump. Nothing. They do it's nothing. It's just entertainment. Yeah. It's entertainment. And we're like, wow, this is amazing. But how do we do this? Because it's the other side of wrestling, the entertainment aspect. Like we can get in there and do all the moves. We did it. He hated it. How to make him important was to spend three minutes establishing your character and not while wrestling but even just the way that you're... Just how you put yourself together in the ring. How you, how you step through the ropes. Yeah. The physicality. How you, yeah. How you walk around, blah, blah, blah. I remember doing um, like a snap suplex on someone and he's like, freeze that! You <laughs> <laughs> must want to tell me how good it was. Yeah. <laughs> like thumbs up, like, eh, good. But again, a big guy shouldn't be doing a snap suplex. A big guy should be doing a huge vertical suplex. Hold up there. So just yeah. stuff like that where I'd learnt the wrestling here. I'd learnt how to put on a basic match here, but then... Um, it was really beneficial for the next level to be, all right, this is what you should be doing as a big guy. This is how you should sell as a big guy. This is how they should sell for you. In this situation, you should do this. And it was all the stuff that we just, that, that knowledge isn't here. In Australia, a lack of veterans with 20 to 30 years experience who've carried the responsibility of delivering as part of a TV product contributes to wrestlers struggling to see the big picture and instead wrestling for themselves. There's, no, there's not enough control, I don't think, of... Uh, okay, so this is the opening match. So this is what needs to happen in an opening match. So when I see people going out there and doing three dives in a row in an opening match, I'm like, that's silly. Like, that should be in the main event. And if you're a main event star and you're in the main event, do it in the main event. But if you're, if you're a main eventer, but you're in an opening match, then you need to put on an opening match. Don't steal the show every time because you're ruining the show. You're putting yourself over, but you're ruining the show. Oh, and that, that depends what you want to get out of wrestling. Are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it to benefit the product overall?
There's a lot of things I can't do that guys twice my size can and guys half my size can. I am good at a certain skill base. I can get by. But you got to remember, John Cena's not a great wrestler. If you, if you watch John Cena as a wrestler, you go, geez, that guy's taking some really terrible bumps right now. Like he's all on his butt and like, you're like, what is he doing? And when he's like calling out moves, he's very loud. And that's something we're told not to be. And so is Hogan. Hogan's not a good wrestler, but Hogan and Cena are good at what they do. And that's why they're on top of their game. Let's look at Lad Storm and Dean Malenko, right? fantastic wrestlers, technicians, but realistically Hulk Hogan and John Cena made millions of more money than they did. And that's what it's about. Let's not forget this is a business. I'm trying to sell t-shirts. like, And if that means I have to wrestle a certain way, I will. To me, a wrestler is like a contracted builder. Okay, I have a certain set of skills. They're trying to build a house. They're bringing me in to do those skills. So if I'm a, if I'm a tiler and they came in, they say, you need to tile the bathroom. I tile the bathroom. If uh, I then have a skill in painting, they want me to paint the wall as well, I'll paint the wall. We're trying to build one big house. I'm a con- subcontractor. They're paying me to do a job. That's, That's it. That's a delightfully ethnic analogy. It really is. <laughs> you want me to build your house, I'll build your house. And then we build it and my cousins come and they build more. <laughs> more recently, Mr. Juicy has been drawn into uh, storylines that bring out a more serious, dedicated side of his character. But for those who were there from the beginning, they'd know that Mr. Juicy began well-rooted in comedy. I'm kind of very influenced by what's popular in Japan. And at the time, comedy was popular. When I first started watching Japanese wrestling, I started watching Dragon Gate and met the Florida Brothers. And the Florida Brothers were three guys who had dyed blonde hair, like slicked back like Elvis, were quite, you know, built, but nothing special. But all they did was comedy. So they had this one referee and then it was sort of like a traveling carnival in Japan that will go city to city and they'll just do this one comedy match over and over again. And I'm like, no one's doing that here. Like I, I used to watch Cracker Jack and I used to think, yeah, well, okay, this guy's funny, but he's also insane. So, you know, sometimes people are like, do I laugh or is he going to come at me? So I was like, I just want to be the funny guy. To stay fresh, you have to innovate. You have to change. And this has seen Juicy expand his repertoire beyond comedy. It's, it's tough for sure because, you know, you want the easy sort of comedy style pops, uh, but you also want to be taken seriously because when you're wrestling the undercard for three or four years, you start going, guys, I'm kind of bored. And the crowd gets bored with you too. The crowd goes, I've seen that. Like it was funny the first eight times when I can't nip up or, you know, when I roll backwards and get stuck in the ropes. That's funny, but I've seen it. So you, I think you have to evolve just like anything. Anything has to evolve. You could, you know, do if you look at the Rocky movies, for example, there is what, five Rocky movies, now six with Creed. It's a different story every time. You know, Rocky loses, Rocky wins. Rocky is disabled in one of them. You know, Tommy Gunn beats the shit out of him in the street. Like, it's all different. And I think just like a movie, you have to evolve. So, yes, right now I might be able to mix serious and comedy, and then I'll probably go a bit more serious, and then all the way back to comedy. Because I just have to keep doing something different for the crowd, to for me to be relevant, I think. I think what's really interesting is that a common criticism of wrestling by people who like so-called real sports is that they are real sports, you know, that they don't have storylines, they're not fake, it's not predetermined. I actually think real sports would be a lot more interesting if they had storylines. 
would, Real Sports are already incorporating storylines. I don't just mean, you know, the more recent Conor McGregor, Floyd Mayweather thing, but athletes for years have seen the way that wrestlers are able to work an audience and a public perception to get interest in their product, and they've aped it for years. Uh, Muhammad Ali, by his own admission, cribbed a lot of his own antagonistic shtick from a pro wrestler called Gorgeous George. He was like one of the first uh, hyper snooty fancy man characters where he'd come out with an elaborate coat and, you know, no one was allowed to touch his clothes. They were too fancy. And of course, you know, Joe Bumblefuck across the guardrail would be like, fuck that fancy asshole. And uh, and that was, and he'd just travel from town to town and people would pay to see Gorgeous George beat up. Oh, I hope that, you know, it's, uh, you know, like the Iron Yuppie, you know, that Iron Yuppie thinks he's so big. It's the same philosophy of being so antagonistic that people will open up their wallets for the opportunity to see you get your smug face punched in. And Ali went that I'm going to do that. And we still see it today. I mean, uh, Anthony Mundine in Australia is a classic example of an athlete working heel deliberately to try and get people to tune in just to see him get punched out. But, I mean, there's even stories in, in footy. Like, you only need to look at the Bulldogs in 2016. That's a that's a huge storyline. You know, the whole thing was about this ascendancy and could they do it? And it's really not just a game. You know, they're pumping a huge amount of narrative oomph into what is really just a game of AFL. Oh, at any time when it's a, a coming back from injury story, that's always, you know, really powerful. You know, oh, this horse, he's broken his leg in five places, but he's come back and it's his fairy tale, his Cinderella story. I love it when they talk about horses like they're people. <laughs> like, the horse doesn't know what the fuck's going on. I, I get put in a little booth and then I run real fast and then maybe I get to bang some other horses at the end. I just, I just want to eat some grass, man. They don't, don't even get to bang them. That's the tragic thing. It's too what? dangerous. If you're like a really, really expensive stud horse, it's too, it's considered too potentially too injurious to fuck the other horses. So it's all like they. I think they wank them. And anyway, is, This probably won't make it into the podcast. Is this why my manager is now getting me to jerk off into a cup rather than banging rats? <laughs> I mean, let's just abandon the storyline concept. I want to talk more about horses, jerking off horses and rats. <laughs> One thing I did want to ask, though, is a lot of people in the recent Mayweather and McGregor match said, oh, it's amazing, they're cutting these great promos. But from somebody, from the perspective of somebody who teaches promos, were they any good? Yes and no. I mean, you've just got to look at the the money the place made, and obviously it was working. All right, I'm not going to sit there and go, and they did it wrong, and with my non-millions, and judge these millionaires on how they do business. All right, so obviously it worked. I think a lot of people who were very quick to say, oh, this is classic wrestling, wrestling 101. Anyone who doesn't think this is wrestling doesn't understand wrestling. My issue with that is that within a wrestling promo, there's something called burying, and the idea here is that everyone's kind of got a make everyone else seem good so that if I talk up my opponent, I don't say he's fabulous, I want to be like him, I want to wear his clothes. But you you know, you this you know, my opponent's a tough guy. You don't say that your opponent's a piece of shit. Cause then if you get in the ring and you beat them, well you've just you've beaten a piece of shit. There's no achievement there. And if you lose, you've lost to a piece of shit. So within wrestling, there's usually a fine line you walk between, you know, antagonizing and, and giving shit to your opponent and utterly burying them. Connor and Floyd, they were burying each other. 
I mean, it's like Connor called him a fucking bitch over and over again. You're a fucking bitch. He's a fucking bitch. You lost to a fucking bitch. It's, I mean, it probably won't damage their brands because they're such colossal brands and he's not sticking with boxing after this anyway. But in wrestling, yeah, you wouldn't go repeatedly calling your opponent a fucking bitch when you know you knew you were losing to him on Sunday. You'd just set yourself up to look like a chump. So then to bring it back to wrestling, I think everybody was very struck recently by the Roman Reigns and John Cena promos. There's a really interesting moment on the August 29th episode of Monday Night Raw in a promo between Roman Reigns and John Cena where they were signing a contract for an upcoming match. And it's something that's really polarised a lot of people. On the one hand, there were the people who thought it was all a work. This was just something that WWE had planned for ages and unleashed on the fans. In the other camp were the people who thought this was a shoot, that John Cena and Roman Reigns were finally going each other for real. Firstly, to clarify, I'm just going to touch briefly on shoot versus work. Shoot refers to anything that is legitimate. So if a match turns into a shoot, the guys are fighting for real. They're trying to hurt each other for real. If you're working, then you are playing along with your opponent and trying to tell a story. And that got popularized in the 90s, specifically related to promos, where, you know, a dude would say, throw out some personal information about his opponent and or uh, air a legitimate grievance with the company on the mic on the show. And this would be called shooting. With this particular promo, and probably in WWE in general, I think it's pretty rare that an actual shoot would make the air. I don't think it's probably they were given enough leeway to kind of do their thing, but I shouldn't think that they got out there and John Cena, professional company man, aired some legitimate grievances about his opponent. But this is being regarded as a shoot promo, a la CM Punk's pipe bomb promo from a couple of years ago. A really good shoot promo is a promo where a wrestler can incorporate elements of reality or maybe incorporate information that someone in the know would get or someone who's followed it online and knew the backstory and knew what was going on backstage for real. They would get extra meaning out of that promo. But at a surface level, I think a good shoot promo still has to work as a work. Many years ago when Kevin Nash was talking about going over on the weekend, he was using an insider term for winning a wrestling match, which is to go over. And so the shoot subtext was that there were backstage politicking that was going to allow him to win. But a shallow fan reading of that statement is that Nash is going to win on Sunday. And I think that was what was lacking from this promo. John Cena stood there and told Roman Reigns, you're not good enough, you're failing in your position as the company's guy, I can't stop wrestling because you haven't stepped up to take my spot. And sure, from a shoot reading, that can make sense. But from a work reading, Roman Reigns has been winning a whole bunch of matches at WrestleMania. He's won a whole bunch, he's a world champion. How is he not stepping up or good enough? That dissonance created out of a shoot statement that wasn't supported in a kayfabe sense to me, kind of pulled me out of it because all I could see was the shoot. It was all behind the curtain and none in front. This kind of reminds me of whenever the WWE tries to do something tailored to the insider hardline fans. Sometimes when they try to placate those people and don't consider the surface level work side of it, you end up with stuff that's kind of unsatisfying. I'm sure they thought they were onto a gold mine when they said, we'll take the figurehead of everything that's commercial about WWE, we'll take John Cena and we'll put him with everyone's favourite counterculture, indie, hardcore, wrestler's wrestler, Rob Van Dam. And they did that at the ECW pay-per-view where it was going to draw the most die-hard, true wrestling, wrestling fan. We hate family entertainment, we love wrestling, this is legit, this is the, the sport of kings. 
they put this match out in front of the audience and what you had was a match where everyone's hero Rob Van Dam the wrestler's wrestler was selling for offense from a wrestler that no one else in the building took seriously everyone's poo-pooing John Cena's offense and yet their hero is acting like it really hurts him and that 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 sort of weird dissonance to me pulls me out of a good wrestling match I want to talk about swerves. Uh, a swerve in wrestling, or probably in general, is where you think things are going one way narratively and then, bam, surprise, it goes in a different direction. Uh, these aren't new in wrestling. They've been happening a long time, but they were really popularised during the Monday Night Wars, which, for people who somehow don't know, it's when uh, two titans of professional wrestling, two companies, were going head-to-head in the same time slot in the States in the 90s. One of the ways they used to try to keep ahead of each other was constant twists and turns, and uh, a writer named Vince Russo, who worked initially for the WWF and then moved across to WCW, was famous for them. Swerves can be really powerful in wrestling because the most striking moments that can come out of wrestling are when your expectations are subverted and it doesn't go the way you predicted. And, oh, I'm surprised. I've been rewarded by this, even though I'm disappointed with the surprise. So swerves can be really powerful, but obviously if you overuse them, then there's, there's no sense of consistency in the world that we're watching stories set in. If there's no consistency and if you can't rely on anything, well, you can't really get swerved anymore because shit happening that you didn't expect becomes the new thing you expect. Often you would find at the height of competition between these two companies, they would often compromise long-term, more satisfying storyline payoffs for short spikes something that could have been uh, a really rewarding, engaging arc just sort of gets shotgunned because we need to pop the ratings tonight. I'd say my favourite swerve in memory was the big reveal that it's me, Austin! It was uh, it was Mr McMahon, Vince McMahon, the puppeteer behind the whole thing and thus forging the corporate ministry going forward from there. I think I love that moment probably more for uh, JR's response in the background. Just a really quick, oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Do, do, do surprise returns count as swerves? Because I'm a big fan. I do love somebody just coming back out of nowhere and yeah, genuinely yeah. catching everyone by surprise. I feel like the Hardys returned well, at WrestleMania. It wasn't a huge surprise, but it was. It did just have that kind of, oh, my God, the way they'd build up to it. They did, what was they, was it Ring of Honor? They did something the night before and everyone was like, oh, they're, they're probably going to be too buggered. I guess it's not happening after all. And then I guess that is kind of a, a good example of a, a swerve in the reality era because we're in a situation now where everything that these wrestlers and superstars do is so publicised and yeah. it's so transparent that I feel like WWE in particular has been trying to kind of claw back some kind of secretive creative control to be able to make these things happen in the current era. They're all over social media. You know, a lot of wrestlers are not on social media under their ring names. You know, they just go by their normal people. And so it's kind of impressive when somebody still manages to pull off a big surprise like that. It's like Beyonce dropping an album that nobody knew was going to happen. I mean, it's one of those things where you think in this era where we're so saturated with information, how do they still maintain that level of surprise? For many wrestlers, a lot of the formative experiences in wrestling occurred when we watched the sport as kids. As we were wrapping up the interview with Sexton, he told us a story that taught him a lesson in the power of surprise that he still uses in his work today. I love the unexpected. So every, every time I put on a match or put together a match, I'm always trying to plan it in a way that people can't see it coming. My stepdad hated wrestling. Whether I was watching Jerry Springer or wrestling, 
he'd be like, you know it's fake, right? If my stepdad was watching it with me and he goes, oh, this is what's going to happen now. And I go, shut up. But then the times that he was wrong, I'm like, ha, sucked in. So then it showed me that we can create that surprise. Learning how to do that and understanding the power of it is huge. That's the beauty of it. Well, that just about wraps it up for us today. <laughs> well, folks. But seriously, thank you so much to uh, everyone who's been on this episode. Ellie Sexton and Mr. Juicy for lending us their voices. I command you to subscribe to us using your uh, podcast provider of choice. We are at Behind the Belt Pod on Instagram and Behind the Belt on Facebook. Let us know what you think of the show. Fill in the enormous gaps and mistakes we have made with your superior information, and I'll be sure to jump on the comments thread and tell you to go fuck yourself. Next time on Behind the Belt. Blood! Broken glass. Thumbtacks. Barbed wire. Stitches. Tables. Hospitals. Oh, my face is a mess. Scaffolding. Spiders. Shit on fire. <laughs> Pits full of piranhas. The <laughs> Spiders is good. We're going to be talking about hardcore wrestling. So we'll see you then.